This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. A massive manhunt is underway for an 18-year-old woman who authorities say is infatuated with the attack on Columbine 20 years ago. Her threats have forced schools across the metro area to close today. And as we've been reporting, she is considered armed and dangerous. One school safety expert tells us this response is unprecedented. We're going to start with CPR's Nathaniel Miner, who has been doing extensive reporting as we approach the 20th anniversary of Columbine. Hi, Nate. You're right. I want to start with what we know about security, specifically at Columbine High. So we know that it's a it's a different beast at that school. And Columbine is part of the Jefferson County School District, the second largest in the state, more than 85,000 students there. And um, I, I spoke with the head of security, John McDonald, for the district just a few weeks ago, and this is what he told me. There's people that want to feel it, touch it, see it, experience it, and those are the people that we have to say no to, that there's a memorial, and we'd love for you to visit the memorial, but not our school. So if strangers show up at the school these days, and they do, McDonald says his team can usually stop them before they even get out of their car. But he does say that all this security costs a lot of money. It's expensive. It it certainly costs more than uh, any other school in the district to maintain the level of security that we we need to here, Uh, probably by a factor of five times, six times more. What is the draw? It seems so morbid to me. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's a lot of people out there who do have a very unhealthy fascination with what happened there 20 years ago. I can't provide insight as to why. Um, But Jeffco says that it's something like 150 people a month that try to get into that school. My goodness. Chris, we know that Columbine has inspired a lot of copycats over the years. Right. Uh, We talked to Peter Langman. He's a psychologist who has studied school shootings uh, extensively. I've identified 43 perpetrators of shootings or other types of mass attacks who have cited uh, Columbine in one way or another. And there have been dozens of other people planning attacks who cited Columbine, but who were stopped. And it seems that this young woman, Sol Pais, who authorities are searching for now, fits into this category, Nate. Right, that's right. That's what the FBI told us last night. Um, Jeffco says there have been more threats on Columbine itself lately, especially as we get closer to this anniversary, 20 years. Mm-hmm. Um, and they say that, you know, threats always go up in April, but clearly that we're at a new level here. Um, you know, the, the, the entire metro area is being affected by this right now. Thanks for being with us. You're welcome. CPR's Nathaniel Miner, who's on the team that's been producing since Columbine about the attack 20 years ago and how it changed America. So indeed, the FBI has identified 18-year-old Sol Pais as a credible threat to Colorado. But she apparently hasn't committed a crime at this point. So if they find her, can they detain her? And on what grounds? It's a question that many of our listeners have been asking this morning. And for answers, I'm joined by Arapahoe County District Attorney George Brockler. George, welcome back to the program. Ryan, thanks for having me on. So that's the central question. When and if law enforcement finds Pais, on what grounds can they hold her? Yeah, I think at the federal level, it's tough to find the tool in the toolbox that they need to address this. But I don't think that's that unusual. I think the counterterrorism part of the FBI probably does a lot more work that never generates into prosecutable cases or arrests than we can ever know of. But at the local level, uh, I do think that at least given the facts that you and I have uh, heard about and read about over the last 24 hours, I think it's likely that there would she would qualify for an M1 hold, an involuntary 72-hour mental health hold, 
And somewhat coincidentally, if not ironically, I think she would likely qualify for a potential uh, extreme risk protection order if that were the law of the land today. And it's not because it doesn't take effect until, I believe, January. But I think she'd qualify for that. But that's interesting. This is the so-called red flag gun bill that was signed into law, but that hasn't yet taken effect. Okay, so 72 hours, that would be the window that you could hold someone under the mental health hold. But it sounds like there wouldn't necessarily be any specific charges that you could hold her for. Now, I can't think of one on the state books right now, given the limited information that we have. It looks like she purchased the shotgun, likely legally. I haven't heard any reason that she couldn't purchase it. Uh, And there may be one. We just don't know about it. Uh, Just merely making threats in and of themselves, it's hard to make that into a crime without some other additional action. I've been racking my brain as to whether or not we could even get to the point of calling it an attempt. If she makes a credible threat, then acts on that threat through travel and the acquisition of a shotgun. And even then, I think it's a reach to get to the point of saying she's attempting to commit some other crime. Uh, But that's at least something that we would consider as part of the analysis. Have you been in touch with the FBI? I have not been in touch with the FBI. No, I've been in touch with our local law enforcement, of course. And, you know, it's interesting, you know, when you had Mr. McDonald on and some other people talking, if you talk to school resource officers that have been in the state doing this for a while, they'll tell you, it's not just Jeffco, that everywhere in the metro area, right around April, things get a little crazy, Uh. get closer and closer to the Columbine anniversary. You've dealt with credible threats to schools before. Uh, I think of the two girls who were found to be plotting a mass shooting at their high school. Um, Do you wish there were more legal tools to dissuade people who act like this around April or any other time of the year? I do with a caveat. And by the way, such an insightful question, Ryan, because if you'll remember, the only reason we had the ability to prosecute those girls at all was because of the agreement that they had. We were able to prosecute them for a conspiracy. If they did not have that agreement, had they just been acting on their own, I don't think we'd have had the ability to bring them into the criminal justice system. Yes, I'd like to have more tools in the toolbox, but I say that also gingerly touching upon the First Amendment. I do think that people have the right to be angry and to say certain things, even things that you and I would disagree with. Um, And I don't want to keep pushing into that. But when it gets to this level, you begin to wonder what are the other things that are available for the public to protect themselves from something like this? And maybe that 72-hour mental health hold needs to be beefed up. I think it's certainly got to be easier for law enforcement to use. And maybe this extreme risk protection order bill will provide us another avenue. Uh, We have less than a minute left, but I think a lot of people are asking today how this young woman was able to get a shotgun. Uh, Any light you can shed in about 30 seconds? Yeah, 18 years old, no prior criminal history, no documented involuntary commitment on NCIC, CCIC background check. She has a lawful right to purchase and own a shotgun. George Brockler, thanks for your time during this developing story. Hey, thanks, Ryan. Anytime. George Brockler, who is Arapahoe County District Attorney. Okay, I want to bring in Susan Payne now. She's with the Center for the Prevention of School Violence. And for many years, she ran the Safe to Tell tip line, which was created after Columbine. Susan, have you ever seen such a widespread response from schools to a threat? Not in Colorado. This is unprecedented, but it's also the 20th anniversary or remembrance of Columbine. And I think people are really taking any threats very seriously at this moment. 
based on the response that we've seen, uh, I don't want to get too much into the realm of speculation, but what is your sense for how serious the threat would be? Well, what you look at is someone that poses a threat. So there's clearly that this young woman has had either a fascination or idolization of the killers from the Columbine tragedy and has taken the steps for a pilgrimage to Colorado, flying here and purchasing a weapon. So what we look at from a threat assessment capacity is once she has the means, there's been indicators that she has the intention And the concern is that she has the capacity to carry out that threat. Now, what we don't know is, you know, what is the threat specifically? You know, I'm sure at this point there's law enforcement in Miami working to talk with the parents, her parents, peers, teachers. She's a high school senior trying to determine what her mindset is. Now, you've worked closely with young people as part of Colorado's Safe to Tell hotline, which you founded after Columbine. What would you say to parents about how to talk with their kids, or what would you say to kids themselves about framing what's going on today? Well, I think it's important to talk about what's going on in any young person's shoes. You know, how are you feeling? Certainly this this story could end very differently. This young woman could turn herself in. Um, She could get some support that she may be needing. You know, that's what we would really pray that would happen. The fact that law enforcement is searching for her and she may be eluding law enforcement, I can't imagine what's going on in her mind. But also for parents that talking to their young people about, you know, we're going to work together. This is a collaborative effort between schools and law enforcement making the decision on any given day of what we need to do to prevent or to protect the students that attend our schools. Susan, I realize that today I'm struggling as a journalist uh, between wanting to be a public service and help uh, find someone who could do real damage and making someone infamous or famous who might be seeking notoriety. Uh, Is this something you wrestle with? Well, I do. I think that that really kind of tells us what's her mental state. She's she's an 18-year-old senior at a high school. You know, is she seeking that attention? How might she feel now? How do we manage this to, like, embrace the no notoriety campaign. Susan, thanks for being with us. Thank you so much. Susan Payne is with the Center for the Prevention of School Violence and has 28 years in law enforcement, including as a hostage negotiator. She also founded Colorado's Safe to Tell tip line after Columbine. Indeed, the CBS affiliate in Miami reports that FBI agents were seen removing items from Sol Pais' home in Florida. We'll continue to follow this throughout the day on air and online at CPR.org. The University of Colorado system is a behemoth, four campuses, 67,000 students, and it's looking for a new president. The Regents' search has yielded a sole finalist, Mark Kennedy, but despite their unanimous bipartisan support for him, the broader CU community is skeptical. Students and the faculty council, among others, have registered complaints, and on Monday there was a protest on the Boulder campus. I spoke with Mark Kennedy Tuesday about the prospect of leading CU. Mark, thank you for being with us. Happy to be with you. Just a little background. You've been president of the University of North Dakota since 2016 
Before that, your resume includes a six-year stint in Congress representing Minnesota as a Republican. Why are you the right person to lead the University of Colorado? To lead an organization of the size and scale of University of Colorado, you need somebody with three separate skills. You need to have somebody that has experience in academia. And I have found that having taught at Johns Hopkins made me a better school leader at George Washington University. And having been that school leader at GW made me a better president at the University of North Dakota. You also need to know how to manage an organization of $4.5 billion. Having been treasurer of Macy's, which is as large as any company in Colorado, I have the experience of leading organizations at the scale of University of Colorado. And third of all, you're a public university with a lot of constituencies that need to be actively engaged, brought together with a common vision. And so bringing together that academic business and political experience is absolutely vital. What's your vision for the university? If if you make your mark, it's in what way? What really animates me is the fact that technology is transforming our lives and the universities. Uh, you got the have and the have-nots technologically. Technology is benefiting some, leaving others behind. We need to do a better job bringing the benefits of technology, preparing them for the careers of tomorrow, whether it be the single mother seeking to enhance her career or a 53-year-old laid-off worker looking to chart a new path. At the same time, this new economy is creating jobs that we haven't even thought of, and most of the students today will work at careers that haven't even been invented yet. That requires critical thinking. So we at the university need to make sure that we're putting contrasting views in front of them, that we're having debates in a thoughtful, respectful way. And third of all, our waning commitment to research threatens to leave us behind. So I'm personally committed to calling for a renewed academic government business partnership to redouble our commitment to maintaining our nation's innovative edge. Your candidacy has been met with concern in the system. Uh, Much of that goes back to your time in Congress, specifically a number of votes you cast concerning marriage equality and stem cell research. Uh, A letter dated Sunday with more than 4,500 signatures was given to the Board of Regents. And uh, it stated that you wouldn't be someone who, quote, would maintain CU's academic rankings and public image or bring together our diverse students, staff and faculty Uh, Continuing to quote here, Colorado's reputation as an open and inclusive place to live, work and study would be damaged by the choice of Mr. Kennedy, unquote. Uh, We'll unpack a couple of the specific concerns. But overall, what is your reaction to that assessment? I'm going to be a champion for welcoming all to the community that my views uh, as it relates to the abortion issue are are not going to have an impact on the university. If it impacted any way, it would be in research. And that's really the the purview of the campuses. I would also say... Let let me just put a very fine point on that before we move on. You're saying that your stance on abortion uh, will have no influence on the sorts of science that's conducted on any of the campuses, just to be clear? To be clear, yes. Okay, got it. If you... Academic freedom protects that for the faculty. And if it's done anywhere, it's done at the campus level. I'm at the system level. And on on the LGBTQ... Uh, I've already put out a statement on that, and I stand by that statement. I am committed to respecting the dignity of each individual student, faculty, staff, members of the community. They'll have the full support to do whatever we can to get them to graduation, make them feel welcome on campus. And I will do that 
no matter who they love or how they identify. You talked about dignity for LGBTQ people. Contrast that for me with a vote in 2004 for the Marriage Protection Amendment, which would have amended the U.S. Constitution to define marriage as the union of a man and a woman. That didn't pass ultimately. But in conversations that we've had on the ground with folks who are concerned about your candidacy, we heard from a student at CU Boulder, Naya O'Reilly, a leader in that campus's LGBTQ community. She says, I don't feel safe with him being on campus. What, what do you say? I say that, as I said in my statement, that my view, as with society overall, has evolved in the more than a decade since that vote was taken. Uh, I've asked the question, would I vote the same way? I've said no. I think what I would tell to that student is look at my record in my eight years in academia, making sure that everybody feels safe, feels included. Not just that, doing all we can to provide the kind of support to get them to the finish line of a degree that will open up opportunities for them and those they love. Mark, I think this is so fascinating because we're at a time when people are so entrenched in their positions. And you talk about an evolution, uh, particularly on the LGBTQ issue. What is that evolution? Help us understand it. I I think it's fascinating. Uh, I think it's an understanding that we need to be welcoming and treating them with dignity, treating them with respect, understanding that they may come from a different place than we come from, but that in no way, shape or form means that they don't deserve as much dignity and respect and support as any other student. Was there someone who is influential in helping shape that evolution for you? Well, I've had a number of folks. You may have seen Roberto Izureta, who recently put out a, a statement in support that said, from the moment we met, my life has been testimony that there is no space within Mark Kennedy for discrimination or exclusion. Isurieta is an associate professor at George Washington. Uh, But we have many others throughout the university community and those I've worked with and others that I call friend that have really helped to shape my thinking. Earlier this month, the U.S. Education Department's Office for Civil Rights told Texas Tech University's medical school to stop considering race in admissions. The move was regarded by some as a sign that the Trump administration is increasing its efforts to curb affirmative action policies. Uh, What are your thoughts in general on affirmative action and college admissions? Uh, I have not wrestled with that at a university yet in that our restrictions have not been as uh, as let me let me go back. Um, can I just not answer that question? Uh, that's your choice. I apologize. I, um, you caught me off guard there. I think however we do admissions, it has to be done in a way to recognize that diversity provides a benefit to all. And there are many ways of doing that. Each university needs to wrestle with it in its own way. But making sure that we have an admissions policy that is embracing a diverse population of students and giving each the benefit of understanding each other. I'm a person that is a first-generation college grad with my wife, who's a first-generation college grad, is truly devoted to trying to replicate those same opportunity for others. Do you like affirmative action? Uh, uh, I believe that we need to be fair and equal to all and fully embracing of achieving diversity in the best way we can within that. 
You're listening to Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner, and my guest is the sole finalist to lead the CU system. That's Mark Kennedy. Uh, your potential predecessor at CU, Bruce Benson, was a president for more than a decade. Is that the kind of commitment you'd hope to make at CU? I would hope that this would be my capstone career within academia. Before you formally interviewed for the CU job, I understand you came out to Colorado on your own, visited all four campuses. Just briefly, uh, what did you learn from that trip? Well, I learned that CU Boulder is truly one of the most beautiful campuses on the planet. I saw some deferred maintenance there that others acknowledge. Uh, by their reports, there's a half a billion dollars of deferred maintenance. I've dealt with a similar issue at University of North Dakota, and I want to keep Boulder, the most beautiful campus on the planet. If you look at Denver and Colorado Springs, they're fabulous universities serving populations that are in need of higher ed. I think those two campuses combined with our online are ideally positioned for the outreach to non-traditional students. And Anschutz is truly one of the remarkable medical campuses for a university in the country. So I, I truly think that these are four gems in a great system, but I think can even rise higher in the ranks of the world's best universities. I'm wondering if your political experience would be an asset here in Colorado, which is one of the lowest funded states in the nation when it comes to higher education. I mean, the revenue CU gets from the state is only somewhere between four and six percent of its total budget. Uh, Would that be a goal, like increasing that figure? Or short of that, what ideas do you have with regards to fundraising at CU? Well, you, uh, Bruce Benson has done a great job on fundraising. I would hope to continue in that path. But I would also say, yes, we need to continually make the case for the benefits that CU and our graduates make for the state, the benefits that our research provides, and why it's important for the state to invest more in CU. Mark, thanks for your time. Appreciate it. Thank you much. Mark Kennedy is the sole finalist to lead the CU system. He's scheduled to hold forums next week on each of the four CU campuses. The Board of Regents would then take a final vote. This is CPR News. A new Colorado Public Radio podcast explores how a shooting 20 years ago changed the country. I want to bring you up to date at the shooting at Columbine High School. People of the community of Littleton, the prayers of the American people are with you. Now survivors of the attack have their own kids. I didn't really tell you about Columbine until you were 11 years old. And a whole scientific field has emerged to stop the next shooter. Search for Since Columbine wherever you get your podcasts. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Magic mushrooms are on the ballot in Denver's municipal election next month. If this measure passes, Denver law enforcement would make policing personal psilocybin use and possession their lowest priority, as long as the people using are at least 21. Denver would be the first city in the United States to make such a move. The Denver Green Party and the Libertarian Party of Colorado have endorsed the initiative Kevin Matthews is with Decriminalize Denver, which is behind Initiative 301. Hi, Kevin. Hey, Ryan. Why do you want to essentially decriminalize magic mushrooms in the city and county of Denver? No person should be criminalized. They shouldn't face severe penalties for a substance that has such tremendous potential. Such tremendous potential. But of course, the word potential indicates that there's a lot that's unknown about these things. In some areas, we've had 20 years of clinical research looking at psilocybin as an effective treatment option for things like depression, anxiety, PTSD, addiction, and also pain. 
But to be administered by healthcare professionals, or in this case, I suppose what you're advocating for is that it be self-administered. That's correct. With our initiative, we're decriminalizing the personal possession and personal use of psilocybin mushrooms. Cultivation at home is included in the definition of personal possession. So these could be grown at home. That's correct. Okay. Might that lead to the kinds of illicit operations we've seen from marijuana, where, you know, basements of homes are transformed into giant mushroom farms? Well, one thing I think Denver voters need to understand, and people in general, is that there's already a culture of use here in the U.S. Denver and Colorado is no exception. And individuals are currently utilizing psilocybin mushrooms as a therapeutic option. Could decriminalizing that, though, bring in something of a new element, a change to what you're describing already exists? I don't think so. What we're doing with our initiative is really making sure that no one sees jail time. Mushrooms right now are considered a felony possession charge, and individuals can face incarceration, loss of livelihood, loss of job, loss of their family for simply possessing a mushroom. This is not just theoretical for you. You've been pretty vocal that at one point you used mushrooms while you were struggling with depression. Just tell us briefly about what they did for you. Yeah. Mushrooms gave me a new perspective. They allowed me to see outside the box that my own mental state was creating because of my depression. I think that depression can feel inescapable. What you're saying is that that there was a light at the end of the tunnel because of mushrooms. There was a, a way of seeing that not everything was awful. Is that right? Yeah. Okay. I would agree with that. Mm -hmm. Do you use them recreationally now or what? Uh, I use them few and far between. I can pinpoint a few occasions in my life in the last decade or so where mushrooms have created this massive impact and change for me. And I don't use them recreationally now. But certainly some people do. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, Is that something you hope to encourage more of or is this aimed at sort of the medical use of it or what? This is aimed at protecting a person's right to use something that occurs naturally. Cocaine occurs naturally. And it's synthesized in a a laboratory process with a lot of other different chemicals that go into the final product, right? And uh, mushrooms do grow naturally in Colorado. You can find them if you know where to look for them. The psilocybin Psilocybin mushrooms. Psychedelic mushrooms. Yes. Let me say there are some 180 varieties of of psychoactive mushrooms. Mm Mm-hmm. They're illegal federally, Mm -hmm. so the market at this point for them entirely is a black market. I'm curious how you know what you're ingesting is safe. Well, you can actually currently buy psychoactive mushroom spores online. And so you'll know that what you're getting is you're getting the specific strain of spores. And then if you decide to actually cultivate those spores at home, you know what you're getting. So the spores are not illegal or you're also doing that illegally? No, that's correct. The spores are not illegal. Oh, my goodness. I had no idea. Are you worried about attracting criminal enterprise? I'm not. There's already a culture that exists here in Colorado. Um, But I guess what you're saying is that this law will do nothing to change it. So why have the law? Well, to be clear, what our language says is that sales and distribution is not allowed. This is for personal use only. And so what we know right now is that Many Denverites, many Coloradoans are turning to psilocybin as an alternative treatment for some of the mental health and addiction conditions that they're facing. I want you to hear this concern. It comes from Peter Drogi. He's the fellow of drug policy at the Centennial Institute, which is a conservative think tank at Colorado Christian University, which is actually not in Denver. I mean, I just want to say that they're 
uh, opposition to this mm-hmm. comes from an institution actually based in Lakewood. But um, it's been one of the most vocal critics of the ballot initiative. It would be one thing if an initiative came up that said, say, a psychiatrist that had someone under his or her care felt like they should have psilocybin mushrooms as a tool of last resort, you know, to help someone with mental issue. If it was done under a a doctor's supervision and prescribed in a responsible way, then that would be a different discussion. Just turning this loose on the streets is the wrong approach. There's also concern that taking mushrooms can cause psychiatric problems in some people. Here's Drogi again. When people say that psilocybin mushrooms can help rewire their brains, you should take them at their word. And, you know, their hope is that it rewires their brains in a positive way. But the reality is it could also rewire their brains in a very destructive way and putting them at risk for really a lifetime. You only have one brain, you know, and And if you put it at risk, that can have an impact for your whole life. The U.S. Drug Enforcement Administration warns that psilocybin can cause panic attacks and psychosis and that an overdose could result in death. So I'd like you to respond to these larger health concerns. Mm -hmm. So first of all, we know that psilocybin is non-addictive. In fact, according to the Global Drug Survey, It is the safest of all substances that people use recreationally. And that survey examined harm to self and harm to others. Psilocybin was at the bottom of the list. Alcohol was at the very top. The ballot initiative would also establish a psilocybin mushroom policy review panel. What an interesting committee it would be to sit on. Uh, That will include law enforcement and city council members, as well as supporters of the initiative and an addiction specialist. Mm -hmm. What do you hope they'll be looking for? The point of the panel is to review and assess the impact of decriminalization in Denver. Look at the pros and cons. Unintended consequences. There may be some unintended consequences, yes. To see how potentially psilocybin can be used as a treatment option. I think some people may hear this and wonder, is this a slippery slope? I mean, first, cannabis is made legal medicinally and then recreationally. Then psilocybin could be decriminalized. You know, what's next? Uh, Would you support decriminalizing other Schedule I drugs, LSD, which is also used therapeutically? Or I suppose it's an extreme example, heroin. Well, there's a current bill that's going around the floor of the Colorado State Legislature that's looking to defelonize possession of all drugs. And so it seems clear to me that the Denver population and the Colorado voters are ready for a new conversation around state and government policies when it comes to drug use and drug abuse. So do you think that this is a conversation starter in addition to its own campaign? It has the the, the potential to be, yeah. If this ballot initiative passes, will decriminalize Denver move on and campaign to decriminalize uh, perhaps mushrooms statewide? Or would you join then the campaigns uh, related to other substances? Well, we are, we have three weeks until the election now. We're hyper-focused on May 7th. I like to say that May 8th, I'll sleep in and go back to work. And the important thing here is that this is starting a new conversation around grassroots drug policy reform. And and there's a, a large conversation that needs to be had. And we need to make sure that we bring the right people to the table to have that conversation. 
That is a politician's answer, Kevin Matthews. <laughs> Thank you for being with us. <laughs> Thank you, Ryan. It was a pleasure. He's campaign manager for Decriminalize Denver, which backs the magic mushroom ballot measure known as Initiative 301 in the city. When the Nazis plundered art during World War II, it was all by design. So even before the Blitzkrieg, the Germans knew what museums they wanted to go. They knew what aristocratic families and their castles and homes they were going to go after. They had you know, what we'd say in, in English as a hit list. That is from a documentary called Under the Hammer of the Nazis. Still today, these thefts reverberate, even here in Colorado. Elizabeth Campbell is an associate professor at the University of Denver. She researches stolen World War II artifacts and the effort to repatriate them. Elizabeth, welcome to the program. Thank you, Ryan. Happy to be here. I didn't realize how premeditated this was. Um, These weren't just the spoils of war. Hitler wanted to create the largest collection of art in the world? Why? Yes. Well, you might know that Hitler was a failed artist himself, uh, but he always fancied himself an art connoisseur. So he wanted to dominate Europe, not just militarily, politically, but also culturally. And he aimed to create a vast cultural complex in his hometown of Linz, Austria. It would have a symphony hall, a library, and what he wanted to be the finest art museum in the world that would far outshine the Louvre. He recruited the top curators in Germany to help him track down works of art that they considered Germanic, uh, as well as the finest masterpieces across Europe that would make up the collection of this vast art museum in Linz, Austria. And so as they are plotting battle lines and invasions, they're also plotting where a particular painting or sculpture might be. Yes, he actually recruited curators to create catalogs that listed specifically where these works of art were located in Western Europe. So they had a precise inventory of works of art that were in museums as well as in private collections. Was this also about money? Because these are works of tremendous value and you have to fund a war effort. Yes, it was more about mobilizing resources in the Reich Treasury to also dominate the art market. So when we talk about Nazi art plunder, it's not just theft. It's actually sales of thousands of works of art. Uh, And so they took advantage of people who were in desperate situations, and particularly Jews. So uh, this whole process affected Jewish art collectors above all who either lost their works of art through theft or because they were forced to sell them under duress. My goodness. Well, a few years ago, a movie, The Monuments Men, brought the Nazi plunder into the mainstream. I'm to put a team together and do our best to protect buildings, bridges, and art before the Nazis destroy everything. Okay, so this was based on real-life events. This special team risked their lives to recover art and antiques taken and hidden by the Nazis. Uh, These items were then sent back to their countries of origin, but not necessarily to their rightful owners. Why is that? Yes, that's correct. So the Allies repatriated the objects to countries of origin, but then it was up to national governments themselves to carry out the restitution process to individual owners. So the individual owners needed to have proof of ownership. So this means sales records, uh, proof of insurance, photographs. 
and the larger art collectors were able to provide this documentation. But for smaller art collectors, and some of whom the the collectors themselves had been victims of the Holocaust, yeah. and in that case, entire homes were ransacked. There was no evidence left for heirs um, or or survivors. Yeah, it's a tremendous job to start thinking of the lineage if entire families were murdered and to whom something belongs. It also strikes me that this is a, a re-victimization in the decades following the Holocaust. Yes, yes, that's absolutely right. Uh, so many owners did not receive their works of art after the war, and the works were sold often multiple times. And so the art, the post-war art market also further dispersed these works of art. Mm. And the fact that other institutions and collectors are currently holding these objects means that the dispossession wrought by the Nazis and their collaborators has continued. Has continued. We'll talk more about the contemporary aspects of this in a bit. But do you think that there are some countries who simply have held on to the works in their national interest and maybe use that as an excuse not to give it back to a particular family? Yes, Russia is the ultimate case. So the Russians were never part of that whole Monuments Men effort. Uh, that was the Western allies who put together the division that uh, helped to recover the works of art and restitute them. For the Soviets, though, the works of art that they found in their zone of occupation was trophy art. And to this day, they have continued to maintain that the the art serves as reparations in kind for all the devastation that the Germans inflicted on the Soviet Union. Oh, that's interesting. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're talking about uh, what continues to be the struggle to repatriate art and artifacts taken during World War II. We have an expert on this in our own backyard. Elizabeth Campbell is an associate professor at the University of Denver. And I want to talk about what laws or even just customs come into play here. What obligations do countries have? Does the art world have the auction houses, etc., to identify one, what art may have been stolen during war, and um, two, uh, to give it back to the families who are its rightful owners? Mm-hmm. So there has been a significant amount of progress in the last 20 years. There was a very important international conference that was convened in Washington, D.C. in 1998. It brought together delegates from 44 countries who agreed to a set of non-binding principles. Say the year again? 1998. Okay, that's a while ago. Yes. Uh Uh-huh. Yes, 20 years ago. Uh, So... According to these principles, countries agreed to carry out research on uh, works of art to promote this research, and especially for countries with public art museums, uh, such as in Europe, uh, and to publish their findings in a transparent way, so using the Internet. Um, And according to these principles, this research would also help to locate rightful owners. So the idea would be that I would go online to some specific website if I knew that my family's belongings had been plundered and I could scroll through. I mean, is it it supposed to be sort of a one-stop shop? So there currently is no one single database. Uh, Uh That's actually an effort that is is still underway. But if you go to the website of any fine art museum, uh, for example, the Denver Art Museum has a provenance research page. 
And all fine art museums should be doing research on works that were acquired after 1932. Mm. So the parameters for this research extend a year beyond the Nazi era. Um, acquired after 1932 and produced before 1946 and may have changed hands in continental Europe during the Nazi era. And you'll see a listing of works of art that fit those criteria, which doesn't necessarily mean that they were looted, but there are questions about transfers of ownership. And the idea is to keep digging. Yes. Yeah. I wonder how technology plays into the ability to better repatriate works of art. Uh, Are there ways... uh, I'm not even sure of, yes. of, of scanning things or, you know. No, you're absolutely right. So the digitization of archives has made restitution uh, easier if people know where to look. Um, so now we have records of uh, sales and dealer stock books. Uh, there are numerous databases with digitized information that's available. The problem is that often people don't know where to look, Mm. and many rightful owners don't know they should be looking. So actually, the process has to start with the institutions doing the research. Because it's not necessarily the descendants who say, oh, there's a piece of art missing. I think of one of your former students, Nina McGee of Denver. She learned her family is directly touched by the Nazi art plunder. Uh, In fact, her mother, Hildy, is featured in that documentary we played at the top under the hammer of the Nazis. It's still a little unreal for me. I mean, it fills out so much that we didn't know. And maybe we'll see some of it. I mean, it would be a miracle. You know, thinking, how many years is this now? I mean... You know, how many of us of our generation are still alive? When you hear that type of story, that impact on a family, what's your reaction? Well, it shows the the meaning of these objects, and it, it's not the monetary value. Uh, so in the case of Nina's family, um, the objects that were lost were from um, her great-grandfather, who was an art and antiques dealer. Uh So the works that have been discovered are not high-value masterpieces. Mm. Um, They're more uh, historical curiosities and items that you might see in a historical museum as opposed to a fine art museum. Like what? So glass vases um, or serving dishes or plaques. Um, So, again, not particularly high-value items. But my goodness, this makes it even more difficult to repatriate objects. If you're not talking about a Monet, you know what I mean, Mm -hmm. and you're talking about something that might have been in a home, a a particularly important ashtray. I'm just just thinking about how this might have been disseminated everywhere around the planet, these types of objects. Yes, and those types of objects that were more like daily household objects, it's very rare, actually, to to have restitution because there are fewer sales records and yeah. all that kind of evidence that we talked about. Uh, your research tells you that this didn't just happen in World War II. Art trafficking is still a major issue today. I think of groups like ISIS. Uh, why don't you talk about the ongoing problem and how the ethics that n- were developed uh, after 
the Holocaust after World War II will really continue to be needed in the future. Yes. So we're seeing uh, cultural property disputes today in a variety of areas. I see us in a kind of unusual cultural zeitgeist. Um, you're seeing headlines about colonial repatriation issues that are affecting museums in Britain and France and Germany in particular. That is, objects that uh, the colonialists took. Yes, when they invaded. Yes, and have ended up in European museums. So we're huh. seeing repatriation claims. Um, there are also claims by Native American tribes for objects in uh, in museums here in the U.S. Of course, there's a whole law, NAGPRA, that uh, yes. deals with that. Yes, yeah. exactly. Um, and ISIS certainly exacerbated trafficking and the black market around the world in trading in antiquities. And what what is motivating them? Is it similar to what motivated Hitler, do you know? Or is it more financial these days or what? There, it's it's financial. So it, it's really fueling their, um, their war effort. Here's what we haven't talked about. The customers for stolen art. Now, that assumes the customer knows. Um, what do you know about the profile of people who might buy some of this stuff, maybe even consciously? Well, of course, it's a, a federal crime to knowingly acquire stolen property. Um, so uh, there is a, a reinforced effort at various levels of the government to, to crack down on illegal trafficking. The Manhattan District Attorney's Office created um, an art trafficking unit oh uh, to be better able to track down this illicit trade in the center of the global art world. Um, ICE is also involved uh, in trying to track down art trafficking cases. So there are enf enforcement efforts that exist, but it's it's very difficult. Is there a particular piece of art that is known to be either missing or still unrepatriated that you might point to? Or is there perhaps a particular story of repatriation that is especially powerful for you? Well, I mean, this case that you mentioned earlier involving my former adult student, uh, Nina McGehee, I think is a very compelling example of restitution. And uh, precisely because uh, the family has not received high value objects. Um, so the German museums have been willing to return these works to the family. So the objects really, in the end, are all about human connections for Nina and her family, for the Germans dealing with their Nazi past, and for this friendship um, between uh, the United States and Germany. Thanks for being with us. You're welcome. My pleasure. Elizabeth Campbell is an associate professor at the University of Denver. She researches stolen World War II artifacts. Tonight at 7, DU is scheduled to show the documentary Under the Hammer of the Nazis about the art plunder and efforts to return items to their rightful owners. It includes a Q&A with our guest as well as Nina and her mother and a German auction house owner. Maybe you know that CPR News has a book club. It's virtual through a Facebook group. But our book club is going IRL. We're going to hold it in real life. And to explain, CPR's Francie Swidler is here from our digital team. Hi, Francie. Hi. So where are you going to be and what are you reading? We're going to be at the Tattered Cover on Colfax on Monday, April 22nd at 7 p.m. And the book for this month is Finding Everett Ruiz. 
It's by David Roberts, and it's a biography of a man whose, quote, bold solo explorations of the American West and mysterious disappearance have earned him a cult following. Oh, goodness. So it's a mystery, but it's also nonfiction. Yes. Okay. And there's still time to read this book. This is why we wanted to tell you about it now. But it so happens that the CPR book club is like any book club, which is people have varying degrees of reading the reading book. the book. Yeah, you don't have to read it. I mean, you can read it. That would be great if you did. We'll discuss the book, but we'll also discuss other book club things and we'll have food there, which is the most important part of a book club. <laughs> Thanks for cluing us in. The book is Finding Everett Ruiz and the CPR book club will be meeting in person at the Tattered Cover next week. Thanks, Francie. Thanks. It's Francie Swidler from CPR's digital team. Thanks for spending time with us today. Again, continued coverage of the school closure situation, the manhunt that's along the front range at CPR.org and on air. This is Colorado Matters.